an introduction, I think. My name is Earl Marsh, and I am an alcoholic. How are you? I, uh... Reminded of what Joe said about the, uh... About the, uh... The wind and the weather reminds me of a story that Hickey Sheridan, who unfortunately passed away last year in Texas, that Hickey told at the Saturday night meeting at our... <clears throat> at our international convention in St. Louis when he introduced Bill. He said, down in East Texas, I had a little town, and in this town, they had no place to put a drunk if they found one. And so they decided that until they could get the appropriate facilities, that they would put the drunk in the ice house. Well, sure enough, one came along, and they shoved him into the ice house. And that evening, the sheriff was at his dining table with his wife, and suddenly he stood up bolt right and he said, Oh, Emmy, I left old Joe down there in the ice house. I've got to go down and get him out. So he put on his hat and he walked like a beeline down the street and he came to the ice house, the great big thick door and a handle that he twisted, and he opened the door as it creaked and way over there in the corner, a little drunk, huddled up and looked up at him and said, For God's sake, close that door. I'm freezing to death. <laughs> I uh, I have uh, been asked to talk to you folks on the topic of alcoholism, and what I'm going to say may just not be appropriate for an AA meeting. But if you, if you will give me the permission, allow me to combine my AA experience and my medical experience together in one topic. Now, it so happens that like Hal, who is engaged in a surgical specialty, I also am engaged in a surgical specialty. And I don't treat alcoholics in my practice, and I'm not really interested in treating alcoholics in my practice. But nonetheless, because this problem is so close to my heart, I have availed myself of what the experts have to say about this disease of ours, and I would like, with your permission, to share it with you. It so happens that I, in addition to being trained in a, in, in a surgical specialty, I was also, my training is bilateral, it's two-sided. I was also trained as a psychiatrist, and I'm a member of the American Psychiatric Association. I don't know quite why I uh, chose to get this training, but I did. And I, I have never practiced psychiatry in private practice. I've always stuck to my surgical specialty. I could because I belong to the association and I've had the training. And it so happens that shortly after I came into AA, someone found out about this other side of my training and thought that I was a practicing psychiatrist. I'm not, but they thought I was and said to me, or said to a meeting where I was, what's worse than a confused psychiatrist? <laughs> However, as we know, alcoholism and all diseases is threefolded. It has three sides. One is the spiritual side. Even acute appendicitis has its spiritual aspect. It's surrounded by 
one of the boss's children. And also, every disease has its emotional side. Now, if you'll forgive me, I'm not going to talk specifically about either the spiritual aspects, per se, of our program, nor am I going to talk about the emotional aspects. Uh, we could spend some time on both of those. But with your permission, I am going to talk about the physical aspect. Why is it, how has it occurred that you and I have become alcoholics? What goes on inside of you and inside of me that makes us have, eventually, this disease? And it's this that I would like to discuss with you with your permission. And they put a little blackboard here because I have a few little things I thought we might put on the blackboard and schools on. And let's see what we can't discover about this thing. Now, we know that, uh, that in alcoholism that there is a fantastic emotional factor uh, in its causation. And this has gotten so that the concept of alcoholism has become one-sided. Many physicians, it's getting less. Uh, many physicians view alcoholism as a predominant or predominantly an emotional disease. Well, it is partly an emotional disease, but growing within the medical profession is the concept that this is also a physical disease. Now, this physical difference that you possess and that I possess is not too well understood. We aren't sure. It's like the early days of diabetes. We used to say uh, that the diabetic had inside of him an X factor. Now, just what this X factor was, we didn't know. But we knew that the diabetic could not metabolize, utilize, burn up sugar in his body as could the non-diabetic. Why was this? What was there that physically was either lacking or that he had in addition to what the non-diabetic had? We didn't know, and so we said that the diabetic had an X factor, and this stood for a questionable physical difference. Now, in 1922 or three, along came two great physiologists, Banning and Best, up in Montreal, Canada, and by uh, very unique experimentation, they did discover that insulin uh, and the the, uh, the uh, glands that secreted insulin were in were deficient. And then the X factor was dropped, and we knew then pretty much, not all, but pretty much the story of diabetes. The same is true of pernicious anemia. We now know the story of pernicious anemia, but we do not know what it is that is different physically about you and about me. We don't know whether you and I were born with this physical difference, or whether indeed we acquire it over the course of time, but it is there eventually. Some of the authorities say, perhaps, and this is guesswork, and incidentally, all that I say tonight, or this afternoon, uh, will sound as though this is a closed issue. It is not. There are many authorities who would markedly disagree with what I have to say, but I'm trying to give you a cross-section of what they have to say. There are some authorities who say that about a third of you and me develop, or are born with, a physical difference in our body, which over the course of time, when combined with alcohol, makes a disease of alcoholism, and perhaps two-thirds of us acquire this over the course of time. Now, what are some of these physical differences? 
We can say down here that the alcoholic then, for sake of argument, has inside of his body an unknown physical factor, which is called the X factor. Now, what are some of the physical differences that we do know? We are learning to feel that this is a disease of altered metabolism. We say that uh, the alcoholic is given to, not all alcoholics, is given to periods of low blood sugar. Now, this isn't 100% true, because after all, we have diabetic alcoholics who are prone to have high blood sugar. But many, many alcoholics <coughs> are given to. The sweet tooth of the alcoholic is known, and from mine reaches from here to Alaska and back again, is known. The blood sugar gets low, one gets tense, nervous, perspiring, irritable, tremulous, and so on. And I'm not talking about recovering from a drunk now, just the lowered blood sugar. We know that there are certain large groups and alcoholics who are given to what we call hypotension, lowered blood pressure, particularly true in the morning. It's true of all people in the morning, actually, but particularly the drunk who awakens, blood pressure is low, and there's a sense of oppression. He's angered quickly. He's irritable. He's tense. He's nervous. And life is on top of him. He isn't on top of life. And so he awakens and his blood pressure is low and his blood sugar is low and he feels like death warmed over and he gets out that damn big book and he reads it and he can't, so he wants to tear it up and throw it down and then he's a grapevine and he reads all this stuff in the literature and then he says himself, I'm off the program. Well, he's not off the program one single bit. This fellow, without knowing it, needs a little exercise, something to eat. That's all that he really needs at this time. <clears throat> now... We also know that the requirements for fluids are fantastic amongst the alcoholics. The non-alcoholic looks at us in dumb amazement at our injudicious slurping of fluids. <laughs> Coffee, water, orange juice, Coca-Cola, gallons and gallons and gallons as the non-alcoholic looks at us and says, what goes on here? Chymographs have been put around the legs and arms of alcoholics and we find that the muscle tension at rest is higher, and by the way, I'm talking about sober alcoholics now, uh, that the muscle tension is higher in alcoholics than it is in non-alcoholics. Apparently, you and I, whether we like it or not, are destined to be tense the rest of our lives. This is part and parcel of us. Uh, the black and whiteness of the alcoholic is known, for instance, the non-alcoholics who lives next door to you or next door to me, decides to cut the lawn. Or his wife says, will you, dear, please cut the lawn? And so he goes out with the lawnmower and he cuts for a while and he sees a bird. And he stops and looks at it for a while and enjoys its contour and the beauty of its feathers. And finally the wife comes out and says, would you please cut the lawn? He cuts a little further and over here he sees a flower. He looks at the flower and he looks at the heart of the leaves. And so finally his wife comes out and says, will you please cut the lawn? And so he does a little while longer, comes to a fence and sees a neighbor and starts to talk to him about their golf game. Well, slowly and tediously and beautifully, he finally gets the lawn cut. You and I are next door in our back and we decide to cut the lawn and it's cut just like that. And then we're back on our backs again very short time. <laughs> there are disturbances in fluid balance. There is, uh, there is slowly getting to be understood some of the breakdown products of metabolism, which we won't go into, and they're technical and it wouldn't do us any good, but nonetheless, <coughs> these are getting to be known more and more over the course of time. One of them is known as aldosterone, aldosterone, which is a hormone which has to do with how you get rid of fluids or you retain, retain fluids. It's very common.
for the alcoholic to go to bed at night and awake the next morning four pounds heavier. He simply retains fluid. And then all of a sudden, he's up all night, and the next morning, he's four pounds lighter. This sort of a business, uh, we, our metabolisms are upset. We won't go into that too much. It's known also that the oxygen tension in the brains of alcoholics is low. This is why, God forbid, but nonetheless, it's mandatory that exercise be utilized by the alcoholic in order to maintain some semblance of the physical aspect of peace of mind. Peace of mind is not all, by any means, what one knows in one's heart. It's also what one does with one's body as well. Well, alcoholics like that. Whenever they hear about vigorous exercise, you'll be lie down feeling passive, and then it's all right. Now, there's some rather humorous observations. The incidence of baldness is less amongst alcoholics. Now, we are bald alcoholics, but the incidence is less and compared to non-alcoholics. I'm trying to describe what we do know about this X-faction, leaving out some of the technical aspects. The incidence of obesity is less amongst alcoholics. As a whole, we are fat alcoholics, of course. But on the other hand, the incidence, the numbers of them per capita is less amongst alcoholics. This reminds me, some years ago, I stepped out of my surgical specialty and addressed 3,000 uh, general practitioners in Los Angeles at the American Academy of General Practice on the problem of alcoholism. And I told them about these humorous observations of the thirst, less uh, baldness and uh, less obesity and amongst these other things in more technical terms that we're using here today. The next day, in every radio in the country, in every paper in the country, it came out that I had said that if you're thin and you've got a full head of hair and you're thirsty, look out! <laughs> well, I, uh, I got letters from all over the country, hundreds of them, from people obviously in AA who said, Doctor, why don't you get wise yourself and investigate Alcoholics Anonymous? And I thought, well, let's do that. So we say then that the alcoholic has in fact Yeah, well how about moving his back? Yeah. Let's see here. undergo periods of stress and strain. For instance, it's like this. You, a problem is presented to you, and you have a period of tension. It's very simple psychology. You all know this. There's a period of indecision, and suddenly you decide, and the tension drops off. And so you go throughout the day like this. For instance, you knew about this meeting. You said, well, it's like our homework, so I go hear that guy talk. For a moment, there was a little moment of indecision. Your tension rose. You pondered for a while. And you decided you would come to this meeting. And if you decided you'd come, well, you're here. And if you decided you wouldn't come, then you're not here. But <laughs> this tension drops off in that fashion. And so it goes. Then we have tensions throughout all of uh, many years. What profession am I going to go into? Where am I going to live? How many houses? How many wives? How many husbands? How far through school am I going to go? These are all tensions we all know about. And all people have learned a variety of ways to decrease tension. Sedatives are one, tranquilizers and that sort of thing. And by the way, I might just make a point right here. Sedatives are dynamite for the alcoholic. Now, let me qualify that. Uh, I think this needs to be qualified. What I'm talking about is, if you are, we have drunk up our right to get chemical peace of mind.
we must say this. There are certain circumstances, let us just take one, the epileptic diabetic. He needs to be on certain kinds of medications. And there are other circumstances, of course, where sedatives need to be used. So we won't go into those, but let me just say this, that if you are looking for something to give you a peacefulness, if you are looking for something to give you rest, if you're looking for something to make the life glorious and so forth, you have drunk up your right uh, to do this from a chemical standpoint, and I advise you to stay away from them because you and I are addictable people. We can become hooked on these, you see. Yeah. Now, uh, so all people have learned ways to decrease tension, and one of them is alcohol. Now, the non-alcoholic drinks, and his tension drops off a little quicker than it would ordinarily. He drops off here. It's said that the inhibitions of life are alcohol-soluble, you see. So, a drop off. So that all people drink to decrease tension, loosens tongues, conviviality increases. This is a glorious fluid. And maybe it's one of the saviors of the human race. I don't know. There are many others, but maybe there's one of them. But not for you and not for me, you see. Because when you and I take our first drink, something fantastic happens. We get a glorious drop off in tension. The tension we have is fantastic. It's as though suddenly manna fell from heaven at our feet. It's as though suddenly God had come down upon his knees and looked up at us and said, You are the Christ. That's all the business. So we have a motivation, you see, to return to alcohol quicker than the non-alcoholic does. Why? It does something for us. It does something for the non-alcoholic, too, but nowhere near what it does for the drunk-to-be. So, we can safely say then, and I think that most authorities would agree with this, maybe not all, we can say that alcohol, the X factor plus alcohol equals or makes big A, alcoholism. Now, lest you feel that I feel that alcohol creates alcoholism, let me state this. Alcohol no more creates alcoholism than gasoline creates habitual auto accidents. It takes a unique kind of driver in the seat. <clears throat> this, then, is the X factor which makes you and I a unique kind of driver when we come in contact with alcohol. Well, as a result, you and I return more frequently to alcohol uh, than does the non-alcoholic, and then something odd happens. When we return more frequently to alcohol, or anybody who takes a foreign substance into his body, he slowly develops a tolerance to it. Now, what does tolerance mean in this chemical way? It means that you and I uh, are able to resist this, or anybody who takes, I don't know, there are the, uh, uh, there are the arsenic eaters, uh, part of the religious ceremony in Polynesia. They start off with small bits of arsenic and over the course of their lifetime increase it, and finally they're taking fantastic doses that would kill everybody in this room. I don't know what their motivation is, but nonetheless, this is what they do. They're all eating is another thing. People say, I've uh, gone on a diet, my stomach has shrunk. Your stomach hasn't shrunk at all. It's just gotten so that your tolerance to food has decreased. Same is true of, of, uh, of alcohol. We build up a tolerance to it, and each day that we, that we drink, our tolerance increases, and our need for, and make no bones about it, the absolute physical need for alcohol grows each day. Until finally, at this given day, we need that much alcohol to give us the same effect that this much used to give us. I recall some years ago, operating on a woman who was taking 40 grains of morphine a day. 
Now, this is on the black market, and we felt that probably this is markedly watered. So that let's just say she was taking five grains of good, solid uh, heaven, morphine. Oh, she was just taking that. Now, this is enough. A half grain, we say, is lethal or deadly to the ordinary person at rest. Maybe it's a little more in some people, some a little less. But that's what we say medically. A half grain is lethal. Now, or deadly. This woman, then, was taking enough to kill any ten of us. Her tolerance had increased over the course of time until finally she required that much morphine to give her the same effect that this much used to give her. Now, in here rests the alcoholic's dilemma. He continually increases his tolerance as he drinks, and he becomes victimized, irrespective of why he started to drink, by a true physical process. The alcoholism then becomes, in its end result, a true physical disease. Now, the World Health Organization has a definition of alcoholism which states that regardless of why the drinker drinks, this regardless of why he drinks, whether he drinks because he likes the taste of booze or whether he drinks because he's nervous or he drinks because his Aunt Emma put him backwards on the pot at the age of four, this makes, this makes no difference. Regardless of why the drinker drinks, once he starts, it is drink and the results of more drink that make him drink more. In other words, we finally get to be drinking once we started because we've been drinking. We drink because we're drinking. That's what happens. We develop a series of symptoms as time goes by. Now, in this culture, it's difficult. How does one satisfy one's ever-increasing tolerance and each day that one drinks, it gets higher and higher and higher, and still be respected as a gentleman and a lady? It's in this kind of fact the alcoholic finds himself and he positively never succeeds in this process. Now, if we were to do this, let's just say that this is a bucket here, and let's, co let's make it uh, correspond to the body. And let us pour into this bucket one half ounce of whiskey per hour, or eight ounces of beer per hour. One would not get drunk. If you took an half, half ounce whiskey uh, per hour, eight ounces of beer per hour, you would not get drunk. Now, any alcoholic in this audience who is stupid enough to go out and try this, We'll finally find what good's a half ounce of what good is a half. You know, it's my impression that you and I were never social drinkers. In my drinking days, uh, and this was long before I had any concept that I was an alcoholic, someone said to me, let's go have a drink. I got kind of sick. What for? I would, what for? What's the point? But if I could anticipate an evening or a night or a couple of days of drinking, let's go. That's sort of a business. I mean, let's do this right. That's sort of... The one thing the alcoholic knows how to do well is how to drink booze badly. You and I know how to do this. Now, finally, the alcoholic in this audience who's stupid enough to go out to try this trick pretty soon will be drinking, let's say, three ounces of, of uh, whiskey per hour. But I promise him that if he does this, anyone here is stupid enough to try this, that only two and one half ounces will be involved in getting him drunk. The other half ounce will be... Uh, will be eaten up. Now, there are some alcoholics who are mean enough for a period of time to drink just a half ounce of whiskey per hour. So if you're that mean and you're that much of a drunk and you want to have the jitters again, I invite you to go out and try this, but I promise you that eventually you'll be drinking more and you'll be in hot water all over again, but maybe you'll come back and be a better AA member, so hop to it if you want it. Now, what good is a half ounce of whiskey per hour then to the drunk? whose tolerance each day is increasing like that. 
What's of no value at all. He needs a fluid level in his body. And this leads into a series of symptoms that I'm going to put down on the board. And one of the first symptoms that he develops because he needs a fluid level is a symptom of gulping. Gulping. Gulping, then, uh, becomes one of the, the uh, symptoms that he develops first. Now we'll put a series of symptoms down here as alcoholism progresses. Not necessarily do the symptoms of alcoholism progress in this fashion, but let's put them down in this fashion anyway. Maybe some of you develop one symptom after or before the way I will put them down here. This is just kind of more or less, let us say. Now, <clears throat> the alcoholic always is prone to be around the source of alcoholic supply. Now, <clears throat> it gives me a chance to say then that 3% only of alcoholics are on skid row. Just 3%. Now, many people feel, and even sometimes they come into AA and feel this way, that all alcoholics are derelicts on skid row. Now, there are many people in AA who have been on skid row, of course. Most of these people have been on, on skid row for a month or two or three or even five months or even part of a year. This is really kind of a visit to skid row, an awfully miserable one, but they are not the true skid row derelicts who chooses to stay there year after year after year after year. Most alcoholics will not see Skid Row except as they drive through it in their Cadillacs. That's part of the business. 97% of alcoholics then are next door to you and me and well over half of their friends and acquaintances have no concept that they have any problem with alcohol. No concept. So most alcoholics then, the 97% that we'll talk about here just for a minute, have a home and a car and auto and family and income and so forth. Maybe it's not the best one they had, but they have something there anyway. <clears throat> they're always in the kitchen. They have somebody over in the living room here. And they're out here making six drinks. I'd say one of theirs is their own. And they always put in a great big slug for their own and just a minor one for the rest of the people in there. And then they take the drinks into the, the company. One day, as the alcoholic tolerance increases, and this drink is not sufficient, he's got to have more, his tolerance has increased, in order to get the effect, he makes a fantastic discovery, and this is a small glass, it holds about three ounces, it's thick, he should drop it on the floor, it doesn't break, it'll bounce, and you can also pick it up again, because you're liable to drop it now and again, and God, you can't do that. He takes this glass, pours it full of booze, knocks it off, then he takes the tray into the company like this, with his own on it, which is, which is stronger. One day, when he's doing this once again, the tray of drinks are all mixed. He takes his little favorite glass, which usually keeps up here behind the dish, brings it down, fills the food, and is just knocking it off when a stupid non-alcoholic walks in and says, what are you doing that for? And uh, <clears throat> the alcoholic says, uh, well, uh, I don't know. It seems like a good idea somehow. And so he, uh, he, he puts the glass back and takes a drink in to the people in the living room, but he makes a deduction that what he's doing is frowned upon. So the next time he makes the drinks in the kitchen, he has them all in the tray, his is much stronger by this time, he looks out the door, comes back in, grabs the glass, fills it up, knocks it off, takes the tray, and into the living room he goes like this. Now... <laughs> We've all done that. The trick is to do this and not get caught. And then one day, he says, the trouble with these people in the living room is they're drinking too much. I must save them. 
So he takes out the biggest glass he has and pours out the glass all the way up to the top, and he says, I think they're becoming alcoholics. I will save them. They won't think there's so much in the bottle. And I'll put this up behind this plate, and no one will know it's there. And he puts the booze in this glass up behind the plate to save the people. And then finally, this is his tolerance is increasing. He's gone way off the board and goes way up like that each time it goes. Next time he goes to the liquor store, he buys Mickey's or a pie and puts them in the glove compartment of his car. He puts them in the bottom of a suitcase or out in the garage or someplace. The trick is to do this so you constantly have a supply. Now, we know why the drunk is doing this. He absolutely must have an increase of alcohol each day because his tolerance is continually, 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 continually increasing and he is becoming victimized by a true physical process, irrespective of why he started to drink. Now, we know, and Chuck said it the other night, that the first drink is mental, but once you take that first drink, boom, you're off, just like that. Now, these little maneuvers up here that I have been talking about are known as sneaking drinks. You know, there used to be an old cry amongst the alcoholics, why don't the liquor companies make flat fists? You see, you put round fists inside of a drawer on his shirt, and every drawer is thick, and you try to get open when you're half stiff, and the bottle rattles around, people here, and they come in saying, what are you doing that for again, you know? So the cry has been, why don't the, uh, the liquor companies make flat fists? And they're very obliging, they now make flat fists. They sit in the corner, they don't rattle around, and you're perfectly all right. Now, if we were to take this off the board, let's all remember now that it's the X factor we're talking about, which combined with alcohol makes alcoholism, and now we're now putting the symptoms on the board as the alcoholic's tolerance daily increases. Now, if we're to put this following formula on the board, this is E standing for surgical ether, the kind of ether that we use in surgery. Now, we don't use this very much anymore. We do sometimes, very safe anesthetic. <clears throat> but we don't use it because we have other ones that are better. If we add to this water, H2O, we will then have alcohol. Now, ether then and alcohol are identical except for that minor difference. <clears throat> I don't mean you can take a drop of ether and drop, put a drop of uh, water in it and have alcohol. You can't. But chemically speaking, this is what occurs under certain appropriate chemical circumstances. Well... If one then tolerance to it, alcohol is increasing, one is drinking more each day. What does that mean? That means one is anesthetizing oneself with fundamentally ether over the course of time, and slowly the brain gets put to sleep. But because the body is so tolerant and can stand so much alcohol before, uh, the, uh, before the brain is put to sleep, the first thing that happens is that the frontal lobes go to sleep, and this is where consciousness, we feel, is perhaps located... And so, one is then blacked out. One is walking around, uh, not, if one goes back, has more alcohol, goes back further, certain pyramidal tracts are knocked out, and one falls on the ground dead drunk. And if one goes back further, and the vital center is back here, what's known as the medulla oblongata, are anesthetized, one falls flat in one's face, and one just doesn't get up ever again. It's a fatal business. But nonetheless, why doesn't the non-alcoholic do this? His tolerance isn't high. He can't stand it. He vomits and gets sick and goes home long before, you know, but not, the, but not the alcoholic. So blacking out then becomes one of the symptoms. Now, incidentally, there are many alcoholics who have not had blackouts until very late in the game, very late. I have known alcoholics who have not had blackouts and have still had delirium treatment. But nonetheless, most alcoholics 
develop these uh, first three symptoms reasonably early in the game. Now, the toxicologists call this toxic T, dependent D, drinking D. Toxic, dependent, drinking, uh, drinking with slipping control. I'll put down here S, C, slipping control. It isn't, it isn't guaranteed to this alcoholic that once he has his first drink, that he will know enough to stop. He may know a little bit, but it becomes less and less and less and less as the tolerance becomes more and more and more and more. So this is kind of the first stage of alcoholism. Now, there's some who say that this alcoholic <clears throat> can stay sober without the benefit of Alcoholics Anonymous. Maybe so. But our big book says that with really an exception, the pre-alcoholic or the alcoholic cannot stay sober without spiritual guidance. So if anyone is here in this category, I advise them to stick around AA unless they're one of the rare, rare people somehow. Now we get to the second phase of alcoholism, and this is inappropriate drunkenness. Getting drunk at the wrong time. I'll put down here inappropriate D. Inappropriate drunkenness. This is when one says, well, my boss is coming tonight. I've been told I drink a little too much, so I'll kind of take it easy tonight, and uh, I won't drink too much, actually. I won't drink at all. No, I'll have two drinks. <clears throat> One of the men who brought me into Alcoholics Anonymous didn't bring me in, but he was at my first meeting. He was a great two-drinker. His name was Clark, and uh, Clark was a butcher, and he drank all day long. Never missed his work, but drunk all day long. He would come home at night. He would buy a Mickey at the liquor store, get to his front doorstep, pull out the cork, and take two drinks out of the bottle. Then he'd walk upstairs, open the door, and his wife, Jane, would reach out and grab him by the coat and bring him in and smell his breath and say, Clark, you've been drinking again. He'd say, oh, no, dear, I've just had two drinks. He was right. He had just had two drinks. <laughs> so inappropriate drunkenness. Uh, the boss is coming or there's some important uh, occasion. I must not be drunk. I'll just have two drinks. And lo and behold, he awakens the next morning uh, with the, uh, from a blackout and wonders what happened. What happened to me? Uh, I said I wasn't going to uh, drink more than two drinks, but I forgot. This is the point. Alcoholism anesthetizes the rememberer up here. Our forgetter becomes active, and we do not remember to stop drinking. That sort of a business. We forget what we had said. One drink does this to us. So it isn't the first drink that makes us drunk. It's the first drink that makes us forget not to get drunk. That's what happens to us. Now, about this time, the alcoholic develops a symptom which is destined to plague him forevermore. It burrows in the pit of his stomach. It's like a black shroud that hangs over him. It's something that's constantly with him. It's something that he, he puts out his hands to the skies and cries out now and again. And this is a horrible, ever-pervading symptom of remorse. Remorse becomes part of the alcoholic's daily living. And about this time, he develops the shakes and sweats. Now, no one quite knows why the shakes and sweats occur. There are those who say it's due to the depletion of the cortex, the rind, the skin of, 
a gland that sits back here on top of the kidneys, the adrenal gland, which is a gland that is so important in maintaining our function when we're under moments of stress. When we have this disease of alcoholism going along, we're under constant stress. There are those who say that the cortex, the rind, like the rind of an orange, uh, becomes depleted and we can no longer respond to stress. This gives us the shakes and sweat. Some say it's due to some disease in the midbrain that comes because of excess alcoholic intake. Some say it's due to the fluid balance upset. There are other people who say that there's a little substance known as acetylcholine, which exists between tiny nerve fibers and tiny muscle fibers, and which, if present, permits the delicate movements, and if absent, makes for gross movements, and so on. Reminds me of the story of a very famous guitar player and a very famous clarinet player in a bar in New York, both drunk, and they're in there in the morning trying to get a drink up to their lips like this and shaking and spilling half of the bartender pulling some more and a non-alcoholic came walking in and saw this performance and he looked at these guys and spilled all his booze all over the bar and he couldn't make them out and he said by the way fellas he said what business are you two engaged in he saw all the shaking and the guitar player in typical alcoholic fashion looked up at this dumb non-alcoholic and he said uh, well he said I'm a I'm a brain surgeon my friend here's a watchmaker you know <laughs> and it's kind of a business so we see then. Remorse. I'll put here S plus S. Shakes and sweat. I'll put a semicolon. I'll put A M D. Morning drink. The alcoholic says, Ah, if I just had a little of the hair of the dog that bit me, all would be well. And don't you know, possibly nothing sedative, tranquilizes, nothing makes. The shakes and the sweat and the remorse disappear like a couple of ounces of booze in the morning. Once again, that is, you can keep it down. They used to say that you, uh, the alcoholic who had the dry heaves, which comes at this time, should always buy two kinds of alcohol. One that's not too expensive, and if he has the money, one that's rather decent. Because in the morning, if you can take a cheap, inexpensive booze, half it comes up anyway, and why waste the money? But finally, one stays down, and you've got the good booze that you can spend the rest of the day on. So, the shirts are slip, and the morning drink. And about this time, someone comes to the alcoholic, and he says to him, aren't you drinking more than you used to? He says, yeah, but I'm tough, and I can take it. Well, the woman says, I may be small, brother, but I'm potent. This is then <coughs> rationalization. Rationalization. Now, it's an odd thing, as we get along here in the story of alcoholism, here you've got somebody who is gulping drinks and sneaking out and blacking out all over the place and getting drunk at the wrong time, fearful or more, shaking and sweating, drinking in the morning and says, I'm a great guy because I do it. Rationalization comes along this time. Now, if we were to take this formula I had up here, and let me put it in just little smaller letters here, E, that's the ether we mentioned, plus H2O, that's the water, equals alcohol. Uh, we had that before. If we're then to add to alcohol an appropriate chemical mixture, two molecules of carbon dioxide, that's the air we exhale, we would then have table sugar. So table sugar, ether, and alcohol are identical except for these minor differences. Well, the alcoholic whose tolerance is continually daily increasing like this, he satisfies his caloric requirements, but there's no protein, there's no fat, there's no vitamin equivalents, no, no vitamins or mineral equivalents, no, none of the usual food supplements except sugar. So we then develop malnutrition. 
Well, now, let's just take one. I often like to take vitamin B2 deficiency. I can take any one. And by the way, anyone of any disease can develop uh, malnutrition and develop these same symptoms. What are the symptoms of vitamin 2? I could take A, B, D, I mean, B15, B6, B12. Make other words. We'll just take B2. A sense of crying easily. Now, we all cry. But I mean constant, constant, constant flooding over the course of time. And a sense of driving, impending doom. Now, often we feel when we are a little bit wondrous about this, that something might drop on our heads. That's right, of course. But this, as a matter of degree, horrible impending doom and disaster and crying easily and all this sort of a business. Well, you take an ad that you got somebody that's gulping and sneaking and blacking out, get drunk the wrong time, remorse, shake a cleft morning drink, thinks he's a great guy, crying all the time, running doom and says he's a good guy because he does it. And you're slowly getting yourself kind of a mess, you see, as time goes by. And all this because the tolerance increases each day, and the alcoholic must have no booze, but he must have more booze in order to satisfy himself as long as he continues to drink. Now, it's a strange thing that alcohol does something to the appetite, does a great deal of the appetite. Now, let me just put down what happens to most of us, a non-alcoholic and alcoholics alike. We awake in the morning with a low blood sugar, particularly low in the alcoholic in general. Or diabetic alcoholics, of course, but talking about the non-diabetic ones now. See, we eat breakfast, up goes blood sugar, towards noon it's dropping off again, and we eat lunch, and up goes the blood sugar, and towards evening it's dropping off, we eat dinner, up it goes again, and bedtime it's dropping off again, but we go by the time we're asleep. This means, this is known as a triphasic, three-phase of appetite curve that happens to normal people in physiological balance. Alcohol neutralizes this, so this doesn't occur. So to make the malnutrition worse, we don't eat anyway. Go for days and days and days without eating. And that is what's known as the chuck horror. When the alcoholic who hasn't eaten for several days, some alcoholics then go to the refrigerator and strips it from top to bottom. That's what it, we then have uh, malnutrition, the tongue, and this is added, of course, by loss of appetite, also loss of A here. Then, like every sedative, like every sedative, alcohol finally reverses its action. Go to sleep, wake up, take, take a drink, go to sleep, wake up, take another drink, go to sleep. And so you go. The cycle keeps going on. Alcohol puts you to sleep, but one day it reverses its action, and then it keeps you awake. And you can't get drunk, and you can't sober up, and you can't go to sleep, and you can't stay awake, and you're just suspended between nothing and nothing. It to be emotionally induced symptoms. These are symptoms that are so gross, but they're comparable, let's say, to when you have a cold and you say, I don't feel myself today, the world isn't quite right. You're toxic. You feel irritable, tense, not quite with it. This is the, your cold goes away, and all of a sudden you're back to your normal zone. Sense. We see this surgically. People have a certain personality, they're operated on, a little toxic, uh, and their personality is different than it was. A couple of days, they're recovering very well, and the old personality comes back. The same thing happens to drunk. He develops a series of emotional symptoms that are physically induced. All these things. One of them gets us into more trouble than anything else in the world. One makes the rest of the world hate us more than anything else in the world. It's why the alcoholic in many parts of the country still, in his active drinking days, is kept out of the hospital, and this is the burning resentment that the alcoholic feels towards the world. Walking into a, to a hospital and saying, I'll take the best suite here, sort of a business, and demanding, instead of a demanding sort of a business. 
Then the alcoholic has another symptom that becomes part and parcel of him, and this is a symptom to which he becomes mentally addicted. It's fascinating. It's something that he loves. He can't get enough of it. It's tantamount. It's like the symptom that some people have when they stand at the top of a building and look over. They're fascinated or intrigued with the idea that they might jump. That's sort of, if something pulls them, they don't jump, but it kind of fascinates them somewhere. And the alcoholic with this symptom becomes the same way. He takes and pours it all over himself and rubs it in his hair and all over his body. This is known as self-pity. Self-pity. The alcoholic, you had that. The alcoholic becomes the most resentful, the most self-pitying creature alive because he's been drinking. What does the World Health Organization say after all? Regardless of why the drinker drinks, it is drink and the results of more drinks that make him drink more. Who wouldn't be drunk if you're feeling this way all the time? Then the alcoholic is prone to think he's better than. He walk into a bar, sit on a stool, look to the person who he's right and say, well, he's just a beginning garbage man, I'm sure, and I suppose he's a street sweeper. But as he looks in the mirror, he sees Einstein sitting between the two. As he then falls off the stool, he's heading to cut the door, and the garbage man and this guy said, there goes old Joe again. So, there's this, this godlike phenomenon, you know. <clears throat> the alcoholic has been prone to say, I've heard there's a second coming of Christ, and I wonder... So we've got down here now, you know, you got a fella here that's uh, gulping and sneaking drinks and he's blacking out all the time, getting drunk at the wrong place, he's still full of remorse and shaking and sweating and he's got his drink in the morning as much as he can. Last night he went good, he's undernourished, he can't sleep at night, appetite's gone, still full of resentment, still full of self-pity, and thinks he's Jesus Christ. Right here. Whole thing. That's the alcohol. Right there, don't you know? So then one says all of a sudden, well, who wouldn't drink in Palm Springs because it's so beautiful all the time? Or who wouldn't drink in San Francisco because it's at sea level? I'm going to Denver. There I won't have to drink. Then they won't make me drink. Then those crumbs down there, that weather and all that fog in San Francisco and the smog, and that I won't have to drink. The only thing is he takes himself up to Denver with him, and there he is in Denver and gets just a drug, and he says, Ah, I made a mistake. What I need to do is to go to Long Beach. I need to get down there because it isn't the fog, it isn't the smog, and all it isn't the beauty of Palm Springs. It's the high Denver that does it. But down there, it's the sea level, it's clear, and I can swim, I'll just be fine. But he takes San Francisco and Los Angeles and Denver and Palm Springs, living in Long Beach, and gets just as drunk as ever, and this is known as a geographical cure. Now, we could mention many other symptoms, but that's enough, I think. This is known as toxic tea. Dependent D, drinking D, toxic dependent drinking without control. Without control. Now, this isn't quite true, as we'll see in just a minute here. We'll just leave that for a minute, however, and let's go to the last stage, which involves 3, 4, 5% of alcoholics only. The true stage, absolute addiction. A true stage of addiction. Now, in this stage, the fellow is really a derelict of the woman. 
And the only thing that's important is alcohol. I'll put down here R-O-H. Now, that's the chemical radical for alcohol, just to abbreviate it, is all that is important. Then trying to save faith, family's gone, job's gone, money's gone, alcohol is all that he wants, and this is all that he seeks. Social status, everything is completely gone. About this time, he ends up in jails and hospitals. Well, he may end up in jails and hospitals here, for that matter, or even here. But it's for sure that down here, he ends up in jails and hospitals, and finally, to make this long story shorter, he develops cirrhosis of the liver, COL, I put down here, Korsakoff syndrome, and finally, death. And this is the path of the drunk. As his tolerance continually increases each day, he is destined constantly to go in this direction. Now, those of you here who say to yourself, I haven't gone that far, I only have these first few symptoms of alcoholism. I say to you, even though you haven't gone that far, have hope, you will. <clears throat> All the way down to this point here. Now, if I were to take here just briefly, if I were to take here just briefly, this business, and let me put this in a different way and a little shorter. Let me put here a parallelogram like this. And we'll make this here. We'll describe this in just a minute. Now, let's put all the symptoms of alcoholism on the top. Let's go all the way from gulping to death. Gulping, sneaking, blackouts, all the way down here, geographically secure, you know, and, and of course, it's a honey death. Those are all the symptoms. And let's divide this square into two triangles. And let's say this is abnormal drinking. This is normal drinking. Now, a person can be here, let's say, where... Well, 20% of his drinking is abnormal, and 80% of his drinking is still normal. Or he can be here, well, let's say 60% of his drinking is abnormal, and 40% or 50-50. Or he can be way down here, where 95% of his drinking is abnormal, and 5% only is normal. Now, in other words, even the skid row bum has a little control left. He has enough control to... Uh, uh, Take a little time off to bum a dime to buy a jug of muscatel wine. That sort of business. Now, let's leave that just for a minute. What does this thing mean here? It's a way of stating that in general it takes 15 years for the alcoholic to develop from his first drink. Now, some alcoholics develop alcoholism from their first drink or their first month of drinking or first year of drinking. But by and large, or sometimes 30 years of drinking it takes, by and large the alcoholic takes I remember once operating on a little sweet soul, 73 years old. Now, this is not old. But she looked like a little sweet piece of Dresden China. Uh, did a major surgical procedure on her. And uh, she was a pillar of the Episcopal Church. Had never had a drink in her life. As a post-operative uh, order, I left that she could have a half ounce of brandy three times a day. In those days, a perfectly reputable order. We have other medications now to keep... Uh, blood flowing adequately and so on and so on. I gave her this a half ounce of brandy three times a day. This woman never had a drink in her whole life. In three days, this woman was putting back the covers in spite of a big surgical procedure, crawling out of bed, going to the nurse's desk, getting the keys, opening the narcotic cabinet, taking out the bottle of brandy, taking another slug, putting it in a locking key and back to bed again, sneaking this three days. We finally caught her because the brandy supply miraculously was decreasing. 
and caught her doing this because she wasn't quite that swift as she tried to get back to bed, you know, this sort of business. So I said to her, Mother, you can't handle this beverage. And she allowed as how this probably was true. She had not had the years of drinking. It was very simple to stop. And she did not three days it took her. But by and large, 15 years of drinking. Now, this means that roughly, if we can use these are rough statistics, that the drinking in 1964 reflects that drinking which started in 1949, more or less. But one day the drunk-to-be comes to an elusive line here. And without knowing it, nor can he account for it, he slowly steps over that line, and he develops the first symptom of alcoholism, and he's cooked. If you pardon a physiological reference, alcoholism is like pregnancy. Either you are or you aren't. <clears throat> but a woman can be in early pregnancy and not especially show, or she can bulge in all of her maternal beauty. Now, both women are pregnant. It's just a matter of degree. This guy is just as much of an alcoholic as this one is down here. He hasn't been, he hasn't gone quite as far yet. That's the trouble. But he has the disease just as much as an early diabetic has uh, diabetes like the one who's in coma. One in coma may be worse off. But the disease is still there and it gets continually worse. When one goes over this line, elusive line, where control seems to be lost, he never can return back, as far as we know today. Physical changes have occurred in his body which make it impossible to return, if he ever indeed was there, to social drinking. He continually always will go in this direction. Now, distributed along this line of descent, we have an Alcoholics Anonymous, 300 to 350,000 drunks. Some will come to this bottom, some this bottom, some this bottom, some this bottom. You know, we just have an AA, what they call a low bottom snob who said, well, what do you know about drinking? He said to the high-bottom drunk, what do you know about drinking? And then we had high-bottoms now that said, well, at least it didn't have to go that far. Now, this is ridiculous. Either you have it or you don't. If you got to ask what it is, you ain't got it. You see. So that's the way it goes. It's continuing. Now, what do we do? So a person comes to a bottom and comes to AA, and he has to sober up. This is a tremendous thing to take alcohol out of this man or woman's life. You leave a big hole in it. He's come to the bottom. He's on his knees. He's got to stop drinking. What happens to him? Well, we have a plan in this organization. And we supplant these symptoms, and I'm going to put two A's here, standing for Alcoholics Anonymous, that slowly supplant these symptoms that we used to have. And 29 years ago, there were two men one, a no-good stockbroker, and Bill, by the way, is back on Wall Street. Whether you knew this or not, back on Wall Street, making a little money. Anyway, a stockbroker, and we had a, a, a dumb, almost disbarred doctor, were brought together, and the boss of all said to them one day, I want you two men in the next 29 years to dedicate your lives to surrounding yourself with people just like you. Now he said to them, in the course of time, said the boss of all to these derelicts, you are going to build around yourself an organization known as Alcoholics Anonymous, and it will become known as the greatest spiritual movement of this age. You will become an envy of all governments. You will, in fact, affect politics. You will be held up as one of the greatest uh, slide rules that people can compare themselves to. 
You will materially, your organization will affect education. You will affect the building of new cities, your organization. But to the degree that you feel that you are the greatest spiritual movement of the age, to the degree that you feel that you are affecting politics and politicians, to the degree that you feel you are affecting uh, government, and to the degree that you feel you are affecting education, to that degree you will get drunk again. You are here only to build your organization and carry the message to the drunk, and you're supposed to be like a naughty-headed kid who's walking down the corridors of time with your hand and your father's, and that's all that you're supposed to do, no more, no less. You are care to carry the message to the drunk who still sucks, just all there is. And I'm going to give you some steps, you two derelicts. You say, well, what are you choosing us for? Why don't you choose the great doctors? Why don't you choose the great statesmen? Why don't you choose the great educators? And the boss of all said, if I wanted them, I could get them, brothers. But I want you. And you're the one who's going to do it. And you're going to have something that will fill these miserable people's lives and surge through their hearts. And it's going to be 12 steps. And you're going to say that to them, as a suggestion, we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And then you're going to say to them, we came to believe. Came to believe. Came to believe. That a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sin. And you're going to make a decision to turn your will and your lives over to the care of God as you understand it. Not as somebody else does, you understand it. You're going to make a fearless and searching moral inventory of yourself. Commit to a God, to yourself, and to another human being the exact nature of your wrong. You're going to become willing that God remove all these defects of character. And you're going to humbly ask him to remove your shortcomings. And you're going to make a list of all persons that you harmed and become willing to make amends to them all, you and your organization is going to build over the course of 29 years. And you're going to make direct amends to such people wherever possible except when to do so might injure them or others. And you're going to continue to take a personal inventory and when you were wrong or perhaps even right, promptly admit it. And you're going to seek through prayer and meditation to improve your conscious contact with God, as you understand it. Praying only for the knowledge of his will for you. In other words, Dad, what do you got in mind for me today? And give me the guts to do it. That's all. No more, no less. And then, if you follow all these 11 steps, you're going to have a great spiritual awakening, some quick, some slow. And then you're going to have the opportunity to do what I've told you to do carry the message to another alcoholic. But you're going to have a more of an opportunity. You're going to be able to deal with the non-alcoholic, and you're going to be able to practice these principles in all of your affairs. The two men fell on their knees, and they did In the course of 29 years, they have built up an organization of a bunch of stupid drunks like you and me, and we have an organization close to 350,000. Now, we forget, I as a physician hear a lot about the criticism of doctors. You know, I must tell you, we forget the great debt of gratitude that we owe to the doctor. As an example, recently there's an alcoholic doctor in Philadelphia and myself who asked to be on a panel in an organization, in a book known as Consultant. This is a book put out by Smith, Fine and French, a drug house, for general practitioners. 
and they have specialists who consult on various topics, just for general practitioners. And they have a tremendous circulation. Well, the editor fell upon a grand idea that he would call the major leading article of many pages long, Consultants Anonymous, and talk about alcoholism. Well, always on the cover, there is the picture of the specialist who talks on a, or has written on a certain topic. I've been there myself on certain of my surgical specialty topics. But in this instance, the two of us who were alcoholics were simply silhouettes. And the man who was the moderator, his picture was there. Now, actually, the three of us have never met. I've written to all of them, but I never met them. And we did this all through mail, and the editor compiled this into a grand article on alcoholism for the general practitioner. The man who was the, uh, the panelist, or the, the, the moderator for this panel, in which Dr. A from Philadelphia and Dr. B, me from the West, are located, wrote me a letter the other day and said that in his area, the physicians had asked for 15,000 copies of this article. Now, when you find yourself criticizing the doctor, remember he is eager to learn, and this is only one example. There are lots of doctors who just don't know yet. That's right. There's so much else to do. But we forget the grand debt of gratitude that we owe the doctor. As much as he's uh, put us in the hospital, given us medication, given us advice, and yet the doctor, as much as we owe him, cannot give you and me the kind of sobriety that we must have. We've got to have, just like we breathe and eat and drink. We've got to have it. We can't live without it. He cannot give this to us. And the psychiatrist, God, he's done lots for us. Written a symposium and books about you and me, and yet he, barring some exceptions, cannot give you and me the kind of sobriety we have got to have. We must have. It means life to us. And the clergy, the men of the cloth, my God, what they've done for us. Prayed over us and about us and to us and in front of us and back of us and so on. And even they. And after all, the doctors, the psychiatrists, and the, and the, the men of the cloth, the ministers and, and priests, have given to what we owe our program to them, and yet they, in themselves, cannot give you and me the kind of sobriety that we've got to have. And yet, you can take a bunch of arrogant, perfectionistic, irritable, idealists and throw them together in a room, and barring this room, most places where AA meetings are held, you wouldn't be caught in dead if you were still drinking, you know. And you can get all these people together, and you know, if you have an AA meeting, seven people standing around, you've got seven different conversations, all beginning with I, every one of them. You know, you've done this. And yet, these uneducated people who know so little about living, who have done nothing but harass themselves and the rest of the world, and who have fallen on their knees and had their heads cracked in, can all band together and chop their gums together, and by God, they stay sober in the way that we've got to stay sober. When these great men have only been able to give us the path that we follow, but are unable to stimulate us to do it somehow. We must do it together. Now, what is this that these great men that we owe so much to are unable to give us, and yet we can give. What is this healing power? It's a power I see right this minute. I see it in Murray's face right there, and Donna's face right there, right in the of myself. I see it right there. I can see it as I look around this audience right this minute. I see it from you. 
And I see from you and from you and from you. I've seen it before from you, too. And I see it around, and it radiates up to me right this second. And I feel it as I shake your hand. This very healing power that has brought some semblance of life to you and to me. What is this healing power? Well, I have the slightest idea what it is, but I suppose the doctor might call it psychosomatic medicine. Or perhaps the psychiatrist, the great man, might look at you and me and say, well, you have developed benevolent interpersonal relations, or this is a form of group psychotherapy, and perhaps this is partly true. And there are those who would say that the power that exists amongst all of you is simply a spree de corps. But to me, as I look at it, and as I see it right this minute, and as I felt it in the years that I've been sober and that you've given it to me, it's the very essence of God. God bless you all. Thank <laughs> you.